Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to this week's episode of the Dead Pundit Society. Joining me once again is Michael McCarthy. We're going to be building on our episode from last week by talking about Michael's upcoming book on financialization for regular ass people. You can just tell from that topic that Michael was a logical choice for part three of my finance for regular ass people series. So we're going to be talking about just, okay, first of all, just what the hell is financialization? It's a, it's one of those uh, pieces of left jargon that's thrown around, kind of like neoliberalism, where people kind of have a sense of what it means, but you know, people are sort of uh, hesitant or otherwise loathe to define it precisely. So Michael is going to give us a, a really intense historical accounting of this transformation that we call financialization. And then we're going to break down some of the implications for socialist organizing and policies and what that means for, you know, these up and coming left governments. It's one of the recurring themes. I talked about it on my excellent show with Ed Rooksby. Uh, you know, you've got a Corbyn government on the on the rise here in the UK. You've got something uh, in Kuwait, kind of like a quasi Sanders moment here that nobody really knows what shape it's going to take in the US. But we need to start breaking down these questions and what financialization means for our politics and how we win. So we're going to do that very soon. But before that, got some really awesome news. It's not very often that I get to bring you something this exciting on the, on, on the Dead Pundit Society. So I teased it last week. Uh, there's going to be a co-host on the Dead Pundit Society from here on out for the foreseeable future. Anyhow, we're going to give it a test, see how it goes, see if you like it, see if we all like it, see if she runs off and disgust. Her name is Amy. She's fantastic. She's from Australia. Uh, she has been a close comrade and confident, confidant of mine throughout this entire uh, show, almost. Uh, I met her through the podcast, and uh, she has some mutual friends in the podcast sphere. Michael Brooks, uh, Doug Lane, uh, other folks on the Rev Left podcast. And she really does the rounds, and she knows the landscape very well, and she has an incredibly analytic approach to these politics in a way that I really enjoy. And I think you all are really going to enjoy having her around as well. So Amy's going to join us for the first episode next week on the dead pundit society. Get excited about that. I'm pumped uh, doing these monologues. Quite frankly, it's kind of boring and it might be boring for you to listen to as well. So starting next week, we're going to spice things up. We're going to get the banter going and uh, hopefully, you know, Nothing's going to change, uh, you know, effectively in terms of this long form interview process. I, I like the long form. I think you do too. That's probably why you're here. It's what makes DPS unique. So we're going to keep these weekly long form interviews going. That's not going to change one iota. What will change, however, is in addition to those long form interview episodes, we will have other episodes where we talk about more immediate and medium term topics. Uh, these these are the kinds of newsworthy. Uh, items that I think we really need to break down in a serious way because that's where the rubber hits the road, so to speak. That's where this sort of like big picture theory, history, and strategy uh, is implemented in the here and now. Not only in the kind of like, just kind of like hot take economy or the position staking game that we play, you know, on the left, but, but also just in terms of like knowing like how do we act as a left? What should we do? How should we, how should we think this through? 
And if my show, uh, you know, the long form kind of uh, free flowing discussion that happens on this show is all about kind of demonstrating how some of the smartest people around think through these topics, then I would like to have this this new additional show be about, you know, sort of applying these politics into the here and now and sort of like grappling with that in real time. And all the mess and the, the you know, the, the, the complexity and the gray areas uh, that, that that entails. So enough of that. Big news. Lots coming your way. Head over to patreon.com slash deadpunnets and subscribe today. There's going to be a lot of subscriber-only content coming your way in addition to the dozens and dozens of hours of B-sides that are already over there for my subscribers. All right. So look forward to that. That's next week. But first... Enjoy my interview with Michael McCarthy. Financialization is an economic paradigm where the conversion of real economic value into financial instruments and their exchange within the financial system comes to dominate economic institutions, activity, and value creation. Through financialization, the financial industry converts any work product, physical asset, or service to an exchangeable financial instrument that can be traded, speculated upon, and ultimately managed through the financial system. As Professor Greta Krippner has stated it, financialization is the pattern of accumulation in which profit-making occurs increasingly through financial channels rather than through trade and commodity production. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of the Dead Punnett Society podcast. I'm Adam Proctor, as always. This week, we're going to be talking about finance for regular-ass people. That's right. We're not done yet. This is part three, and I've got on the show Mike McCarthy. He is a assistant, an assistant professor of sociology at Marquette University. Uh, thanks for joining us again, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me. So this is part three of the Finance for Regular-Ass People series. Um, I've had on a number of people by now to talk about the history of finance, uh, Wall Street. We've talked monetary theory. Uh, Mike Beggs and I talked quite a bit about the economics and politics of full employment and some of the pitfalls that workers and state managers faced in the 1970s during the uh, profit squeeze uh, which led to the Volcker shock and all types of, uh, you know, uh, fuckery uh, and <laughs> under, under Reagan and Thatcher and uh, neoliberalism. Uh, we all know that story quite well. So I brought you on the show. We're going we're gonna to provide, uh, produce some complexity to this narrative and talk about the real political aspects of finance and the integration of uh, you know trade unions, state managers, politicians, and social actors, uh, with the idea of you know trying to figure out how the hell do we get ourselves out of this mess. So, uh, finance capital. You're writing a book on finance and financialization, and uh, you know maybe the 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 the, the possibility of producing a form of public finance and public investment. What is your entry point into finance? How do you teach finance for regular ass people? What does it mean to you? Well, I mean, the first thing we want to think about is what is what is finance, right? It's just uh, it's just the circul- circulation of money uh, with the intent of realizing some returns on that money, right? And um, if we think about that, we can think about the era that we're, we're in as an era of finance capitalism. It's kind of a 
a new epoch, if you want to think about it like that, where finance has become uh, much more dominant in our economy and in our in our daily lives than it than it was even 30, 40 years ago. I mean, if you think about it, uh, 2008 crisis is a crisis that was basically spurred on because of uh, mortgage debts that were incurred by workers. And that's something that would have been totally unthinkable um, in the conditions of classical uh, capitalism in like the 17 or 1800s, that like the debts that workers accrue could bring down an entire system. So that right, that's, right. workers that, didn't even have access to credit uh, on that right. level. I mean, in, in any remote sense. I mean, I think that's a really important insight. One of the things that uh, my mentor, uh, you know, Leo Panich, uh, likes to raise to his students and his and his courses and, and and elsewhere is he has to remind us millennials and even even the Gen Xers out there that you didn't just you didn't used to be able just to go to the ATM and take out money twenty four seven. Uh, he likes to tell a story. I, 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 I trust I'm not telling on him because he tells this widely. He likes to tell a story about how he was in college and uh, he was going to take a, a girl out on a date at the LSC, I presume. And, uh, but he couldn't because he didn't get to the bank on time and he didn't have cash. And Lord knows he didn't have a debit card because those things didn't exist. And he didn't have <laughs> access to a credit card. And so, you know, he, he, had, to, he had to cancel his date because he didn't have uh, cash uh, to, to pay for it. Um, so, you know, little things like that we take for granted. We have access to cash. Um, so it's not even so much just investment or debts. It's just like the, the, the basic access to money 24-7, uh, credits, debts, uh, and so on. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's absolutely right. That, um, that in our modern era, in, in modern capitalism, the this, this circulation of money with the intention of making more off it is, is incredibly prevalent. And what we see now, I think, is, is something of an asymmetry that it's, that's emerged between sort of uh, the sphere of production and the sphere of circulation, um, which kind of made the 2008 crisis possible. Um, so what finance capitalism is, if we were to kind of take a big overview of it, it's it's the ascendancy of of circulation for profit, circulation for returns, and sort of the the, the increased importance of that in our in our daily lives. Um, and we can think about that basically at four different distinct levels: at the level of industries, at the level of firms, at the level of the state, and at the level of workers themselves. So, for instance, if we if we if we were to take the the level of industry, we can see that the financial sector's share of GDP, looking just at the U.S., increased from about 15% in 1960 uh, to 23% in 2001, uh, surpassed manufacturing in the 1990s. And in the years leading up to the 2008 crisis, bank profits were like at historic highs. And what's, what's interesting about this is that the financial industry has become more and more important, not primarily through kind of traditional loans and lending to, to corporations or things like that, but because uh, banks have really restructured themselves. They've focused more on generate, generating profits through open financial markets, um, uh, more so than outright borrowing and lending. Uh, they've turned towards uh, 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 sort of mediating to earn fees, commissions, uh, the, trading financial assets to earn profits. So this, this industry has kind of gained ascendancy through, through greater speculation, through embedding itself more and more in, in, in speculative financial markets. 
So on the industry level, we can see that uh, one finance has uh, has has become more and more important. What's interesting is that this 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 hasn't occurred with a relative increase in the number of people employed in finance. So even though even though finance is uh, uh, you know has has this growing share of GDP, it's not like more and more people are working in the financial sector sector. It's actually remained kind of kind of similar. Right. So this growth in fire, which is uh, what finance, uh, insurance, and real estate as a large sector uh, in the economy in neoliberal in the neoliberal era, has not uh, sort of kept pace with the uh, employment uh, that that this uh, you know sector maybe you know ought to provide given its dominance uh, in the economy. For example, uh, it's I yeah, think that's, that's an, right. That's, that's an important uh, uh, dilemma that's led to the you know the mass maybe structural unemployment you might say under this accumulation regime. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. So you have this you have this industry level. Then you have the level of firms, um, non financial firms, you know, like classic manufacturing firms, which increasingly. Um, has turned to financial activities as a source of profits. Um, so firms like Sears, General Motors, Ford, GE, you know, these are these are like firms that we thought of as like classic manufacturing companies. They're now all these firms are financial juggernauts, you know, who um, who's engage who's sort of like engagement in financial markets like really overshadow the uh, the things that they do in sort of actually making commodities, commodity production, things like that. So, for instance, GE uh, General Electric now has a sort of ha- now has GE Capital, which is it's like uh, it's the company that it spawned off uh, to to engage in financial activities. A lot of these companies kind of created created financial units initially to support consumer purchases of their commodities. So, like Ford would uh, would give loans to people to buy their cars, things like that, right? And but these things kind of became sources of profit in and of themselves, right? Right, they were producing and controlling markets in ways that gave them access to to financial resources, such that they uh, just sort of, unbeknownst to themselves, uh, suddenly had the resources of a bank. Right. Right. <laughs> and, exactly. Uh, I mean, I, that's obviously kind of being flippant about it, but it's like, uh, well, you know, we, oops, we're, we're, I guess we're kind of a bank now. Let's do something with this in a really sort of way. I, folks who have heard my episode with Steve Marr. Uh, in the labor and the capitalist state series, we'll we'll know that his research in particular uh, looks at the growth of of GE as this juggernaut, and 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 it really breaks up this distinction between, say, like um, you know, a state versus markets. Uh, GE is really a juggernaut that that transcends a lot of those types of traditional, uh, you know, uh, divisions. But in any case, uh, just a little appeal to go back and check out my episode with Steve Marr if you get a chance for for folks out there. So, yeah, so um, corporations become uh, uh, money making machines for the sake of of making money. As as what did the CEO of what was it um, Bethlehem Steel said? We're not in the posi- we're not in the position of making steel. We're in the position of making money. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty pretty telling. Yeah, so that's the that's the shift you're pointing to. Yeah. I mean, have you seen that commercial, that GE commercial where the, the kid comes home and he's like, hey, parents, I'm a, I've got a job at GE. And then the, there's the the father's like, your grandpappy wanted to give wanted me to give you this hammer. You know, <laughs> have, you, have you seen that? No, oh. no, I haven't. He's the, the dad's like, yeah, manufacturing, you know, your grandpappy uh, would have wanted you to have this. And he puts a big hammer on the table and the, and the kid's looking at the hammer. He's like, he's like, I'm going to be writing the code. And the, the parents like, you can't lift the hammer, can you? 
Um, you know, <laughs> whoa, 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 all right, all right. You know, like I, I get the whole like sentimentality, but do you, do you really have to like you know uh, beat up on millennials? Jeez, right, like, right, come on, right, man. Right. We're out here breaking our asses, just trying to keep up with these transformations that you laid on us. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> anyway, there's a no, no, but, you know, the, the the point of the the point of the commercial was like, hey, we're more than that. You yeah, know, like yeah, we yeah, don't yeah. just well what. Well, that we're more than that, but we're also uh, uh, an extension of a proud legacy. Yeah, right? exactly, exactly. Yeah, so it's it's a, it's a both and, right? Like GE is 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 tied up in the fabric of American, you know, life since right. your grandpappy worked day. for <laughs> It's just that we look a little different today, and and forget yeah. about our mortgage schemes that crashed the economy. We're not going to talk about those, but uh, anyway, exactly. <laughs> I don't know if, if if you know of a uh, of a book called Capitalizing Crisis uh, Capitalizing on Crisis by Greta Greta Krippner. She's the one that like I think really successfully shows this. She she basically gets data and shows um, the ratio of portfolio income, which is uh, basically financial income that would come from interest, dividends, and capital gains, uh, to corporate cash flow, which is basically profits plus uh, depreciation and allowances. And she shows that if you look, if you're if you're looking at non-financial firms, so these are firms that like provide services, they did manufacturing, something like that. Throughout the 1950s and 1960s, this ratio was quite low and stable. So they didn't get most firms did not get a lot of their income from por- portfolio. Um, but in the 1970s, it starts rising, and much more rapidly in the 1980s, uh, to the point that basically by the early 2000s, non-financial firms, on average, make almost half of their profits from portfolio income. Right. Right. right so right. that's, that is a, that's a major shift. That's a major shift in the way that profits are generated, a major shift in the way that firms that we think of as having this kind of like old manufacturing legacy, like GE have basically become financial firms as well. Um, right. Right. If you, if you were to break that down, a lot of, a lot of these profits are actually coming from, from interest payments. Um, as opposed to dividends and capital gains. Yeah, that proud legacy, you know, that uh, that your grandpappy's union was busted uh, by the same corporation <laughs> that you yeah, now right. push pencils for. Uh, what yeah, a, exactly. I mean, God, that just warms the heart, doesn't it? A GE <laughs> was uh, known for employing a, a very aggressive uh, a, a union busting strategy that was very yeah. innovative back in the 1950s, such that uh, not not a, it was so successful it was uh, employed uh, broadly throughout multiple sectors until it was ultimately outlawed because it was that fucking uh, aggressive and hostile uh, to the the rights of of, of unions. But anyway, I, nonetheless, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> so you, so basically, you get these changes at the at the industry level. You get changes at the firm level. Financial finance capitalism also entails important changes within the state itself. Um, so if we go back to our old old friend Marx, uh, in a couple places like uh, Capital Volume One, Marx. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The the eighteenth Brumaire, he talks about the aristocracy of finance, uh, and what he what he what he has in mind with this idea is that uh, even back then there was there were sort of a, a the elite of society. We're kind of making making money off of public debt, and and he says in in uh, in, uh, in capital the public debt becomes one of the most powerful levers of primitive accumulation, um, and we can basically see that today as well. So huh. so a Wolfgang streak in buying time, 
kind of documents this really brilliantly. He shows basically that, you know, public debt has kind of drastically increased over the OECD. It's gone from about 40% of national public, excuse me, 40% of the national product in 1970 to, to nearly 90% by 2010. Um, we can see that happening right now in the U.S., where the total debt is is uh, almost 21 trillion. Uh, we usually think that, oh well, you know, China is the is is what owns all of our debt or something along those lines. But but actually, those government bonds are held uh, in large portion by the elite, by by capitalists, um, and that that portion has actually increased over time. So the the share of government bonds held uh, by the richest one percent rose from 16% in 1970 to more to more than 40% in 2010. Wow. Wow. Talk about elite control over uh, the economy and the finance sector. That's exactly. I mean, and, and if you, and if you think about it, what's happening is essentially that, uh, that this is a kind of redistributive project because, uh, as we lower taxes, right. Right. Uh, the state needs new sources of revenue. It sells bonds. It's it's basically sells debt to sort of get revenue to do things, and then it pays the people that we lowered the lowered the taxes on <laughs> to get the money. Right. 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 This is Richard Wolf's uh, uh, re- real. This is his shtick. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, he's he's a, he's a Marxian economist. You know, um, he, he's a brilliant guy and, and a really really great uh, colorful speaker. He was on Chapo. A lot of folks will have definitely heard that by now. I've been uh, listening to Richard uh, for for ten or fifteen years now. Um, yeah. He really gave me a leg up actually uh, in my academic career early on. So I owe a great debt to him. But uh, yeah, he he describes this as like you know nowadays we don't tax the people for what we need to tax the corporations for what we need. We borrow them. And and then we pay them back at interest. Um, yeah, a, that's, a, that's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's one, one guy, he's, he's, he's produced this short, but really great book called public debt, inequality and power. His name's Sandy Hager. He kind of, he really breaks this stuff down, like empirically and kind of, kind of shows like who exactly owns public debt. Like how, like how does public debt actually redistribute upwards? Um, it's just kind of evidence that's, it's really hard to disagree with. Uh, and we and we kind of we kind of see that happening, you know. That's like a that's a it's a fundamental component of this financial financialized era that we live in, right? Right, right, exactly. So we've covered the broad strokes of this, uh, you know, the the neoliberal hellscape that we find ourselves in. This is always how I start my show. God, it's almost like there's a consistent theme at play. Uh, so let's 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 do some bottom feeding. Let's backtrack and talk about um, how we got here, because this is really uh, at the heart. The history of finance and financial regulation is really at the heart of a lot of very important debates about how to reform our financial uh, system. Uh, And I think, uh, you know, you and I uh, are in broad agreement about uh, some of our critiques of some of these attempts uh, to reform finance. And and we need to think a little harder about how to, how to, how to, how to do this successfully. Should a left government uh, come into power in the, in the near future, let's go back to that hot potato Glass Steagall. People will be very familiar with this, uh, you know, this appeal to reinstate Glass Steagall. Uh, mm-hmm. So, let's start with just what what it was in the first place. What was Glass Steagall? What was it uh, meant to address? Yeah, well, Glass Steagall was uh, basically established in 1933. Uh, it separated commercial from investment banking. Um, 
And oftentimes, I, I think when sort of uh, folks are thinking about the rise of finance, they they see the repeal of Glass-Steagall under Clinton as being sort of a key moment in uh, in this transition towards the financial uh, era. But I think that's kind of a misrepresentation of the history, and that actually uh, it, it has uh, the rise of finance has uh, much deeper uh, historical roots. It's not really it's not really a story of kind of uh, rentiers kind of uh, coming coming into existence and, and sort of uh, pushing regulations out of the way and and taking over larger and larger market share share. I think I think financialization actually has uh, roots in actual productive um, practices in the in the actual economy. Right, right. That, that's very interesting because oftentimes, you know, the industrial productive sector is uh, counterposed to the finance sector. And what you seem to be arguing is that they, is that they really uh, sort of came up uh, together as necessary sort of, uh, you know, uh, flip sides of, of the same coin. Right. I mean, if, if you look at the fact that non-financial firms are making such a large portion of their profits from financial activities, what explains that, right? Why, why do we see that shift? I, th- I think that we can kind of really root it in a couple of different things. One is, um, you know, kind of following the idea of, of uh, Robert Brenner a little bit. Um, we've kind of seen since the 1960s, we've had this kind of sustained overcapacity in production um, due to the fact that American firms are increasingly encountering uh, competition that are sort of driving down profit rates. And it's kind of, um, lodged American capitalism and indeed global capitalism into something of a, of a kind of permanent uh, crisis, right? That this, this crisis of profit, profitability. I think one way of thinking about finance is, is that it's a kind of crisis avoidant, avoidance mechanism. It's these financial activities have allowed firms to, um, you know, avoid those profit crises and sort of engage in, um, in new ways of money making, it's somewhat paradoxical, of course, because it's it's prepared the grounds for our own era of manias and stock crashes and and that right, sort of thing. Right, right, right. I mean that that's that's the role, the cr- the critical role that, like I said, again, I always say this, but I'm I'm building on something here, people. So all of my guests interconnect, but f- longtime listeners of the show will be very familiar with this argument that there's an integration between uh, finance and the state. Um, they're not counterposed necessarily insofar as the state had to be the firefighter in chief, if you will, at each point uh, in uh, these kind of uh, financial crises that we found ourselves in. Um, and yet uh, these these uh, crises were sort of necessary, uh, necessary outgrowths of, of, of the American state and, and the financial sector sort of pursuing um, its uh, strategies for uh, flexibilization. Uh, to continue, uh, you know, accumulation uh, in the post-war period. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. And your and your pointing to the state is is really crucial because I I think that if we were just to leave the explanation at that, at what I just said about sort of overcapacity in production, profit rates uh, going into decline, it's it's an incomplete view, and that we actually also need to think about um, kind of the more proximate political causes of fin- financialization as as well, and there. I think the the state played a a a, a pivotal role in sort of pushing uh, the uh, the economy in that direction, um, particularly in in uh, with the Volcker shocks. I mean that's that was just absolutely crucial. Essentially, what happened was 
I mean, you've, you've talked about it in your past shows, the, you know, the Fed, Federal Reserve is kind of able, able to determine the level of interest rates. And uh, by controlling interest rates and uh, particularly, in particular, increasing them, it makes kind of borrowing uh, to finance investment or consumption more expensive. If you can lower it, it makes it cheaper. Kind of obvious. Right, right. And, and, and what the what the uh, what the Volcker shots did was it kind of rapidly increased uh, interest rates through through complex things we don't really need to talk about. Uh, and it and it and it sort of changed the conditions under which firms are able to make a profit. So firms were, were pushed by these by these changes to be even more austere, to be sort of uh, less willing uh, to uh, make wage concessions uh, to their workers. I mean, the, the, the Volcker shock was, was a direct response to uh, the inflation crisis of the 1970s and early 1980s, where policymakers saw workers as the cause of this, of this crisis. Right, right. And, and Volcker, who was a darling of Wall Street, you know, who was equally upset about the, about the dollar losing its value, uh, kind of came in, had, this, had these very bold ideas to, to sort of uh, force firms, you know, indirectly through, through uh, interest rate changes to, to sort of be more austere with, with their, uh, their money. So, so what happened was, I mean, the direct result of the Volcker shock is between 1979 and 1983, 2.4 American manufacturing jobs were lost, right? Uh, a lot in apparel, metals, textile. Uh, by the end of the 80s, more than a quarter of a million steel jobs were lost. Um, you know, right, we had right. some. We have some manufacturing move, move to southern states, but it's a, a period in which unions kind of get smashed. Right, right. This is the moment that uh, that uh, what is it? A season two of The Wire. Uh, kind of uh, sort of uh, documents. And of course, those are dock workers, but that's that's in Baltimore, and it's very much uh, integrated with the steel sector and the decline of labor and, and all the rest of it. They're kind of looking at the after effects uh, of that process uh, in pop culture, just so people might be more resonant with with those processes if you didn't live through it. You know, as a as a as a uh, a grizzled uh, union person. No, I think yeah, that's absolutely right, and. We we shouldn't think of of these Volcker shocks as being, uh, um, kind of like this historical uh, event that doesn't relate to what's what's happening now with financialization. There were there were totally part and partial of it. Um, you know this the the deunionization and smashing of of uh, the working class in the U.S. that happened because of the Volcker shocks. I mean, we're talking about sort of. You know, nearly six hundred thousand uh, 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 United Steel wor- worker members that were lost. Uh, nearly f- uh, five hundred thousand Teamsters. Nearly three hundred fifty thousand United Auto Workers. Nearly uh, three hundred twenty thousand International Association of Machinist Workers. You know, like huge numbers of of, of union workers kind of kind of lost their jobs during this period, precisely because of these policy changes, and and the result of that. Um, in sort of like the broad scope of, of of American political history, wasn't just to smash labor, but it was also to sm- smash the ability of working people to make wage gains. And uh, the the, resu- the the sort of period that followed was a stagnant uh, a period of stagnant wage growth, and that's that coincides um, almost exactly with the push uh, of workers into debt and into borrowing to um, basically pay for the things that they want in life. 
So, so this kind of event in, in the, you know, the, the Volker shocks, it kind of creates this, this, uh, fourth aspect of, of, of financialization, which relates to what happens to workers. And that's, right, that's right. that workers are pushed essentially, uh, to take on more debt, to borrow more, to sort of, uh, uh, to, to finance the, the, the things that they need, whether it's, a, a, their home, their, their, their car, uh, basic, uh, consumption. Right. And that's just on a basic consumer level. I think, you know, it does something to the soul, right? As Margaret Thatcher famously said, uh, we, we, we want to, we want to alter, uh, the soul of, of, of humanity, uh, through these processes and change the calculations of, of how they value their time and themselves and others. Um, you know, I, I think about, um, uh, Lester Spence's, uh, uh, don't knock the hustle or not no, knocking the hustle, I think is the name of the book where he mm-hmm. talks about like, this is where, you know, particularly say in black uh, politics and culture in America, this is where the kind of notion of like the hustle comes from, right? This idea that like, you know, you can't uh, depend on, on a job or a state to provide for yourself. Not only do you have to accept uh, forms of debt, uh, p- debt peonage, uh, but man, you got to hustle and you got to, you know, work your whole life, life away. So yeah, these transformations are, are absolutely integrated with the kinds of who just even moral calculuses and, and relations to self that people have in, in, in today's environment, such that I really do think that it's difficult sometimes to make the socialist case to people because they have, they have internalized these demands uh, so much. Yeah, the, no doubt. I mean, this, this period kind of coincides with this the rise of this, you know, financial literacy, um, uh, literature through these popular uh, financial self-help guides and personal financial gurus, you know, they, they kind of promote this kind of culture of risk-taking and, and thinking about yourself as a little individual investor. I I think it's important to think about like the actual lives of working people today and, and, and what it means to be a a worker in, in finance capitalism, because it's quite different uh, than it was in the past. Hmm. Uh, on the one hand, workers are, are totally saddled by debt, right? They're totally saddled by, um, by, by borrowing. We can see that household debt. This is, you know, you mentioned Richard Wolff earlier. He's stuff that he talks about a lot. Household debts risen from rose from like 43% of GDP in, in the eighties to almost a hundred percent of GDP, um, prior to the 2008 crisis. Um, you know, so you see this see this taking on of debt, but also uh, the proportion of financial assets that are owned has also uh, um, increased significantly. So it's not it's not just that the elite are the only ones that are tied up in the stock market, but but working people through either their their pensions, sometimes direct share ownership, sometimes they have a little bit of a mutual fund or something like that. They're kind of they're also dependent on on financial markets to to help them pay for things. I right, right. I, I would be willing to bet uh, that if you did an empirical study and you looked at the retrenchment of the welfare state and and how it sort of worked the local level, you would find a sort of a, a very strong correlation with the rise of 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 payday loan places. That that as as the state and and its welfare functions have kind of been eroded and weakened that actually financial activities um, have kind of uh, uh, have been embraced more strongly by ordinary working people. It's kind of replaced uh, 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 the welfare state in a way. 
right? I mean, payday loan um, style uh, lending uh, agencies uh, did not uh, even used to be legal. They charge right. exorbitant amounts of interest and they have just rapacious terms. Uh, that, that was not even something that the state would allow. But you right. now see that people's survival projects under conditions of financialization and neoliberalism have become so dire that the state – I mean, I even—I don't even actually think that payday lending, uh, you know, all, always necessarily uh, arises from these kind of corrupt, lackey politicians who just want to sort of screw over people. I, I really do think that there's a misguided strata of kind of would-be wannabe progressives who look at these as like an opportunity for people to get money who, where you know, maybe where otherwise they wouldn't be able to, right? Uh, um, so. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, the state the state is shifting and and altering its its uh, its its approach to survival projects alongside of, of these of these shifts as well. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and it's not something you know. Sometimes uh, uh, you you get sort of that you know Whole Foods kind of liberal elite kind of approach <laughs> where it's just oh well, why do people use these things? That you know the it's yeah, it's yeah, such yeah. a foolish financial uh, decision to take out a loan. Well, people, it's 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 part of survival, right? Yeah, These absolutely. things kind of play a, play a role in survival. They fill a, they fill a gap that exists now because we've basically watched our social safety net be been, be torn to th- uh, to shreds, right? right? So, I mean, it's not enough just to sort of decry. Well, certainly, we certainly shouldn't be like you know denouncing them for their irresponsibility. That's that's crap. But it's not even enough just to say like. Um, you know, well, isn't it a shame we should we should stop these things? Like, no, no, actually, we need to replace them with something better, right? Yeah. Rather than just shutting them down. Like, people need access to credit and money. And I suspect I'm telegraphing our later conversation we're going to have later on, on on in the episode. But like, this is where uh, you know public finance uh, comes into play is providing people with cash flow uh, when when they need it. You know, under under uh, humane lending conditions. Uh, no, but uh, in anyway, we'll, co- we'll come back to that. Uh, let's get to some more basic stuff here. Uh, this is my finance for regular ass people. Um, you know, we've prepared them well for the conversation that we've had so far, so it's not that far out in left field. But I really want to cover some basics with you because I think you have some comprehensive answers, uh, given that you are writing the book on the damn thing. So, uh, what is finance capitalism in terms of like, how does it help us understand where financial profits come from? I mean, we're talking about, oh, you know, the banks have all this money and all they do is profit at our expense. You know, the 1% gets rich because of the 99%. But, you know, I I don't know if most people have an understanding of exactly where financial profits come from. And that seems to be a really crucial piece here. Yeah. Well, uh, basically they come from three different sources. So one is loans, the other is equity and dividends, and the third is capital gains. And I'll kind of describe what each one of those things are. So loans uh, would be precisely what what uh, it sounds like, right? It's that person going to the payday loan and and taking out a certain amount. It's the it's the state issuing a bond, which is which is a loan, and then paying interest on it. It's it's corporate it's corporations issuing corporate bonds, and then. Um, Pain and interest on those. Those are all different kinds of loans. Um, what's interesting is is just the amount in which ordinary people are saddled with loans today. And I think I think that uh, Kostas Lapovitsas has this uh, great concept, which is uh, this idea of profits upon alienation, mm. where 
where the the loans that people take out to pay for things um, and the the exorbitant uh, interest that they have to pay on these loans, uh, oftentimes just to survive, is kind of a secondary form of exploitation and and really a direct deduction in their in their household income, right? Like right, not right. O- not only are people like n- like not making a lot, not only is wages stagnated, but then they're actually going to get something taken out of those wages. So like, so that they can g- get enough to survive. Right. 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 So that's, that's Costas Lapovitsis. It's his book, uh, profiting without producing. Yeah. That's and right. it, it's a somewhat, it's a somewhat controversial claim among Marxists, among dusty academic Marxists. But I think politically it's, 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 it's uncontroversial, which is that, uh, you know, Marxism claims that uh, exploitation occurs at the point of production when workers are paid less uh, in wages than the value that they produce. Um, mm-hmm. And Lapovitsis is opening up the possibility and expanding on other people like Hilferding and others. Uh, just to clarify for my audience, I know you, you're well aware of this. <laughs> uh, but Lapovitsis is arguing that uh, financialization opens up a new realm potentially of exploitation that we need to take uh, you know, more seriously perhaps than uh, Marxists uh, have thus far. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And so, and so you get, you get, um, this is one, one way in which um, companies can make profits from finance. And, and in fact, interest on loans is kind of the main way that most non-financial firms are making money through finance. Um, then you have, then you have equ- equity dividends and capital gains. So equity and, and dividends is basically, uh, this is what you're paid out if you're uh, a shareholder. So whether it's sort of like, uh, quarterly or however, however it's set up, uh, uh, firms will pay out dividends uh, to their shareholders who own stock in the firm. You're just kind of like making a profit because you own part of the firm in the form of its stock. The third kind of profit is 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 basically through capital gains, and 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 what what that means is is the profit that you would make if you were to buy a financial asset and then sell it for more. So whether it's stock or 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 whatever it might be. Um, you're, if you if you're sort of purchasing something, uh, it appreciates in value. You go out and sell it. You make a little money off that. That that would be um, an example of a of a capital gain. So those are so whenever somebody's talking about finance and financialization um, and making money off money, they're talking about those three things, right? It's it's uh, it's interest. It's um, it's uh, uh, dividends and it's uh, capital gains. Interesting. Interesting. So the, another question uh, that uh, you raise in your work on the transformation of uh, pensions in the United States is the way in which these uh, transformations towards uh, a, nibr- a neoliberal uh, regime of regulation between you know uh, the state and capital, uh, it produces this dynamic where it redistributes social risk onto workers. Uh, the risk and precariousness that the that previously, uh, you know, uh, resided within firms and or potentially the state. Uh, so how does financialization, as you've mentioned, uh, in, in, increase uh, the, the, bear, the, the brunt of social risk onto the, onto the, the plates of, of workers? Well, it's kind of what we were, we we're talking about before. As, as we've seen uh, welfare provisions kind of retrenched, pulled back, as we've seen social safety nets kind of uh, removed, uh, people are pushed more and more into financial markets to uh, to try to sort of get the, 
get the things that they need in life. So this this is the case in consumer credit. It's the case in with home mortgages. It's and it's definitely the case in pensions, as pensions are are more and more sort of like uh, tied to stock market ups and downs. So what this does essentially is that it sort of makes it it it, it ties people's uh, standards of living. It ties their um, life outcomes essentially to the stock market, and uh, I think this is important for for people to kind of really recognize because sometimes uh, when we're talking about the stock market, we'll sort of present it as being something that is solely uh, in the interest of elites or, or rich capitalists who, you know, own lots of stock. And that's, that's certainly true. It's certainly true that uh, rich people own the majority of stock. It's certainly true that they're benefiting primarily from uh, stock markets, ups and downs, but, but people, uh, uh, ordinary people, working class people, are also tied to the stock market in very important ways. If not as, if not in uh, as big ways in terms of the magnitude of what they're investing in, uh, still important ways for their lives. And so, when the stock market goes up and down, when this, when when we see crashes, when we see manias, that has direct effects on on the lives of, of ordinary people. Sometimes in right. in the pension fund that they have, the the investment fund that they're sort of tied to, um, uh, in, in other ways, uh, at other times. So, so this, the, 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 the risk of survival, uh, that people have is, is increasingly tied, uh, to the ways in which financial markets kind of operate. Right. So it's not just the case as many, uh, rightly point out, uh, that, uh, certainly the vast majority of financial assets are owned uh, and controlled by the super rich, uh, but as you've mentioned, like, I mean, what's even more perverse, I mean, that, that in and of itself is bad enough, right? Incoming mm-hmm. inequality, ownership inequality that, that we have never seen before. I mean, Thomas Piketty t- tells the story b- better than most, even as a non-Marxist, as the concentration of wealth is a major problem uh, in our society. And, mm-hmm. and there's a, there's a, there's a secular trend towards the increasing, uh, you know, a concentration of wealth unless we do something about it. Uh, with state and, and class action, but it's even more, if it, it's even worse than that. It's more perverse even than that story. In, in terms of like regular workers are dependent on the continued profitability of assets that they do not own, that the super rich own. <laughs> that, I mean, so it, that, that's a dark, dark tale of how integrated we are in this regime of financialization, and, and, and it's and it's so complicated that uh, you know uh, uh, it ought not inspire. Um, pessimism. It ought to. It ought to inspire us to really figure out the dynamics of this system, so we can really figure out how to overcome it. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And you can. Uh, it's it's really important to see that this, that you know, the rise of finance, finance, finance capitalism, it matters in in literally all of our institutions of society. You know, we've talked a little bit about how it matters for ordinary workers. We've talk, talked a little bit about how it matters for the state. It's also changed uh, the inner workings of firms themselves. It's 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 radically changed the way in which um, firms allocate assets, uh, both internally and sort of uh, outside of themselves. So during the same period, you, you, we've basically uh, uh, had the rise of this idea of uh, maximizing shareholder value. I know one of your previous kind of uh, guests talked about this a little bit. But it's uh, it's it's an important thing to think about that um, oftentimes people on the left, Marxists, don't really 
don't really talk about it too much, but it's uh, it's it's kind of a critical way of understanding what's going on within within firms. Um, basically, it's a theory of corporate performance that prioritizes um, shareholders over other stakeholders in the firms, like for instance, workers. And to understand it, you have to to understand what maximizing shareholder value is. You need to we need to go back to sort of three different economic theories that that have kind of given birth to this big idea. And that's modern portfolio th- theory, uh, the efficient market hypothesis, and principal agent theory. What modern yes. por- what- good shit, man? We're di- we're getting deep. I like this. Yeah, yeah tell us modern portfolio deep. theory. People, that's, get out your notebooks. Get yeah, a pencil. Get out your notebooks. Take we're some about to- <laughs> notes. This is good let's, stuff. Let's talk about Harry Markowitz. Um, Markowitz, uh, who was he? Where was he? Where did he come from? Uh, uh, so uh, Markowitz. Uh, he was <laughs> I was like, kidding, but let's do it. Yeah, let's do okay. it. <laughs> We're talking about the transformation of like, I mean, actually Richard Wolff t- uh, narrativizes this pretty interestingly, I think, on in oh, his yeah? episode of Chapo. He talks about where do these assholes come from? Like the economics departments <laughs> did not used to talk about uh, uh, financial, uh, you know, uh, financial speculation. It was kind of dirty and beneath right, them. That's, and that's so, interesting. Yeah, the, the rise of, of – of uh, you know modern portfolio theory and these individuals like Markowitz is really tells an interesting story about the transformation of like even like academia academia and and, and all the rest of it yeah right Sorry, right go ahead. well any, anyway that's it, this it's basically an idea that sort of has its roots in in a paper that was written by Markowitz in the in the 1950s he had a student named William Sharp who kind of clarified it and sort of made it more elegant in the 1960s but the essential point is that that the way to sort of hedge your bets in in stock market and the stock market is to d- diversify your portfolio to be sort of invested in a in, in a lot of different companies to not try to put all your eggs in one basket to not try to sort of pick the winner like a sort of racetrack type thing um, and this is kind of what's given given rise to the idea of passive investment you know investing in indexes and stuff like that um, so you have this idea, you have this modern por- portfolio theory idea sort of really start to take take hold in the 1960s. Uh, that is uh, that that's coming about at around the same at a, at a few, you know, a few years later, you get this idea of the efficient market hypothesis, which is by another economist by the name name of uh, Eugene Fama. And that idea is basically that the stock market is the best way to know a firm's worth and that stocks are always an accurate um, valuation of a firm, um, kind of a dubious idea if you think about Enron and some other companies. Uh, <laughs> but it made a lot of people a lot of money. So granted, yeah. it was a success, right? <laughs> exactly. This this was the revolution, really, inside of economics, which produced uh, business schools across yes. you know across the country, right? I mean, this is why, as as I said, Rich, I keep alluding to Chapo, but for God's sakes, they get six billion listens a week. So you guys have probably mostly heard that episode by now. So, but but Wolf sort of like uh, uh, narrativizes this this trend this transition from like uh, you know uh, business schools. Uh, and economics departments, and why most universities now have both. We're talking what you're talking, what you're describing there was sort of uh, was developed uh, in the birth of of the business school. Uh, that that kind of mentality, uh, telling uh, businesses and firms, uh, you know, how to make more money, particularly on the stock market. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, so you, you basically have these two theories: modern portfolio theory and the efficient market hypothesis. And then you have a third theory, which is. Also developed by Eugene Fama and and somebody by uh, else by the name of Michael Jensen, and that's principal agent theory. And this is this theory basically argued that 
the residual claims on on a corporation belong to shareholders, uh, primarily because they don't have any contractual guarantee to earnings like the other people in the corp- corporation. Like, so if you're a worker, you're going to get a certain amount of income, regardless of whether the firm's profitable or not, right? If you're if you're a manager manager, you get a salary, and Sad. and it's and so they basically made this argument that shareholders uh, have a have a kind of right um, to those residual claims. Uh, but there's a problem, and the problem is that managers don't really have much of an incentive to maximize returns for shareholders. They have an incentive to uh, run the firms and firm in ways that's going to benefit them. And so they argue that to, to kind of remedy this, uh, agency agency theory basically says that shareholders need to be active, they need to discipline managers, and that and that executive compensation should be performance based, and it should be yeah. based on how well the company's stock does. And so that the idea of ma- maximizing shareholder value kind of comes out of each one of these three things. So so what what happens is is that in the 1970s and 1980s, when these kind of theories come to work their way into into firms, um, commitments to things like product lines or corporate identities and uh, start to get eroded, and 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 firms increasingly move move in in uh, in, in ways in which they're they're primarily concerned with with uh, uh, getting high stock prices uh, quarter after quarter. Right. So what does that look like, like in the, in terms of the dynamics, like all too often, uh, you know, all too often Marxists have a highly sort of macro perspective, functionalist understanding of how capitalism operates. Like, well, yes, of course this happens because, you know, it's capitalism and, and, and they're trying to make profits and that's what capitalists do. Uh, but, but there's more kind of like internal firm level organizational mm-hmm. dynamics that, that lead to this kind of shareholder value uh, uh, producing the kind of results you're talking about. So what does that actually look like on the firm level? Like how, how does this motivate uh, uh, managers to act in certain ways? And what are the, what are the uh, consequences if they, if they fail? So, so on, at the firm level, we can think about this as a, as a uh, kind of uh, a distributive project. That it's about how how do firms allocate their assets, and maximizing shareholder value has basically led to uh, an era of mergers, layoffs, new late labor saving technologies, as as firms have kind of moved away from reinvesting profits into into kind of productive facilities and R and D, they've uh, treated their assets. Uh, like financial streams that they're just trying to get the most out of, right? It's it's precisely why we've seen GE kind of turn into GE Capital. That it's it's no longer really necessarily about the product; it's about maximizing uh, uh, that that profit in whichever way they possibly possibly can. Right, right. And uh, um, and and we can we can see kind of with pretty strong data that uh. And and this this occurs in the 1990s in particular, as when the stock market's booming, that as um, as executive compensation becomes increasingly tied to stock prices, um, executive payouts gets gets uh, more and more. So you have like these incentive pay schemes that have that have led to top managers and companies enjoying just this unprecedented degree of wealth, while ordinary workers. Have experienced more job loss, more cutbacks, more speed ups, 
as companies like, you know, uh, get rid of certain parts of their business and uh, emerge with other companies and things like that. So what, what this has done is it's kind of it's reshaped really what a what a corporation is. Such that. Corporations are, are, are in this era of maximizing shareholder value, much more fluid, much more willing to sort of uh, to to uh, go into different product lines, to go into different financial activities, uh, to sort of pursue profit in any way that they in any way that they can than they were in the 50s and the 60s or, or, or even before. So you, you see what what some scholars are call, calling Nikefication, you know. Another one of these, another one of these words, which is basically this idea that now, now firms have like this widespread use of non-union contractors. They sort of, they're manufacturing their stuff in other places. They're distributing it, distributing it with, uh, with contractors. Look at, looking at Apple, for instance, uh, the vast majority of its 80,000 employees work in its retail business, right? Right. People that make Apple computers, the people that deliver Apple computers and all their other product lines, uh, in fact, don't even work for Apple. They work; they're just contractors. Foxconn and the rest of them, and in the Shenzhen province in China and elsewhere, with their suicide safety nets and all their other humane uh, <laughs> exactly inventions. <laughs> exactly. So, so what what this has meant is is you know maximizing shareholder value has has meant uh, that uh, internally the way firms organize themselves and operate. A logic has been put in place, which has uh, vastly rewarded uh, CEOs and top-level managers, while the the large majority of the rest of the firm, anywhere from mid-level to to sort of ordinary workers, have gotten nothing to to to, to even less, right? That that uh, right. firms don't sort of reinvest uh, their assets in their own people. Like they once did, you know, even, even though they once did, even though they were doing that because they thought it was the best way to earn more profit in the, in the future. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of the sharp shift away of, away from thinking about, um, firm profits like that, which, so you can, you can kind of think of, of, you know, executive compensation levels, um, and how they've skyrocketed since the 1980s as, as part and parcel of this. Right. Interesting. Interesting. So that's a really great overview of the dynamics of uh, financialization. You've really broken that down. Really great. I like that. It's it's almost like you're writing a book on this stuff and you've thought a lot about it. Uh, yeah. So if, if folks don't- Not much, a little bit. Just a little bit. If folks want uh, a more specific take on this that's already readily available, I will link to a piece that you wrote that came out in Jacobin. Uh, it's called The Monetary Hawks. And it's about the political aspects of what we opened this uh, episode with, right. and the political aspects of uh, the Volcker shock. Um, this is a really important history. It is under-acknowledged, I would say, on the left. Um, a, a lot of people like to talk about neoliberalism. They like to talk about, um, you know, uh, the decline of labor and the Democrat, uh, you know, the democratic uh, capitulation and which led to the kind of triangulation and third wayism and Bill Clinton and uh, Tony Blair and others across the world. Um, but this is really the prehistory. This is where it's at, man. This is where, this is where uh, it all hit the fan. And so monetary Hawks is a great piece. Everybody should check that out. It doesn't really go into the theoretical stuff, the historical stuff you just laid out. But I wanted to just pitch that because it's it, it is available. You don't have to wait till Verso publishes it in a couple of years. 
So uh, let's let's get to some of the consequences of financialization because ultimately this finance for regular ass people is not merely an educational enterprise. I am trying to educate the socialist cadres of today and tomorrow uh, about this system so that we can work to overthrow it. So let's start with um, a foil of sorts. One of the most popular uh, financial financial reforms uh, that's offered up by progressives today is uh, that we ought to reinstate Glass-Steagall, the likes of Dean Baker and some of the other types of folks who are, you know, very close to, say, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Bernie Sanders, those types of people. They would, uh, Dean Baker and this, these kinds of cadres that I'm talking about would, 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 would likely be the kinds of uh, economic advisors that a potential president, Bernie Sanders, would have. Uh, so we need to be very, uh, you know, uh, thoughtful about these these proposed policies. So. What do you, what's your take on um, this this push to reinstate Glass-Steagall? You know, the bottom line is this, is that we need to figure out ways to redirect financial flows in the social interest. Right right now, finance is, is directed in ways that serves the interest of profit, right? What are ways that we can redirect financial flows such that Investment can go into social projects and innovation. Investment can go into workers' housing. Housing Investment can go into health. It can go into green energy. It can go into worker-run enterprises. Investment can go into infrastructure, right? Uh, reinstating Glass-Steagall, uh, breaking up the banks, I don't think actually gets us there. I, I think uh, it's somewhat of a backwards way of looking at uh, financial reform from a socialist perspective. I think socialists need to start thinking about actually controlling the banks, actually democratizing them, democratizing pension funds, democratizing finance more broadly. Because that's how we get the sort of capacity and power to create new lines of credit that are going to be absolutely crucial to transforming society in a, in a deeply progressive way. Um, breaking up the banks doesn't do that, right? Breaking up the banks just creates smaller banks run by a uh, smaller uh, uh, profit interest. So my, my, my argument, my kind of broad argument is that we need to have a controlling finance agenda, a democratizing finance agenda, and that indeed um, fi- uh, finance right now, it kind of, it, it's situated in, in, in a way in which it provides something of an opportunity, right? Usually, usually we think about finances as, as only diminishing opportunities for controlling uh, the economy, um, and it's true that 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 finance capitalism foist serious new dilemmas on working class people, um, but it also offers new avenues for 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 radical politics. Right, right. Um, if we can if we can think about how the property rights over financial institutions themselves can be reorganized, we can we can begin to sort of think about how uh, new lines of credit can be the basis of creating a new welfare society. Um, and this needs to be a kind of robust, you know, energetic left strategy. It needs to be democratic, transparent, not like a technocratic sort of thing. There's public bank- banks in other parts of, of the world. Um, we need, we need something that is, uh, that is, uh, a result of a movement to democratize, uh, finance, I think. 
Yeah, right on. Just, uh, you know, um, I had Lee Phillips on the show. Uh, he, he's a, he's a Canadian, a good, strong Canuck. And, uh, we <laughs> talked about him. he, he and, uh, Mikhail Roswarski, who's another, uh, Canuck, mm-hmm. uh, has a great podcast. He's a, based in Toronto. Uh, it's called uh, political a economy. Yeah. A? Oh, whatever. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so Lee and Mikhail are working on a book. Uh, it's called the people's Republic of Walmart. Yeah. I think they uh, published which- it. Yeah, well, it, it has it has a cover and it has a page on Amazon, but it's not quite out yet. I don't think it's coming ah, okay. out until uh, it's 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 on pre order. People can order it. Uh, I think it, it's supposed to come out uh, late fall uh, of twenty eighteen, so it's going to be a while. But the point is, like, this is re- it's really exciting, and you are 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 a part of a wave of young and uh, you know, hey, we're, we're still young. We're still young, right? Yeah, All right, I, sure. I don't yeah. know. I think I'm pushing it. Am uh, I still a part? Of, am I still a part of the youth category? Uh, the youths, uh, I don't know. Are you how how grumpy are you on a daily basis? Would you say on a scale? It's, of one it's to 10? getting worse and worse every day. Are you on just like uh, those damn kids are too noisy outside? Or are you the, like quite like get off my lawn uh, stage? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> the kids do get noisier and noisier. Well, you just called them the kids, so that at least qualifies <laughs> you as semi-old. Uh, all right, yeah. So we're we're still relatively young, and we're part of a wave of people who who are really thinking seriously about these questions and publishing yeah, on true. this, perhaps for the first time since the 1970s. Yeah. You know, uh, so it's a, it's a really exciting time to be thinking through these questions. They're no longer academic, uh, you know, theoretical questions. It's a question of how to implement certain kinds of strategies. And I think you know that's that's part of the reason why I wanted to have you on is to really challenge this these pro, these uh, progressive notions. They're often quasi-Keynesian, progressive notions that uh, we can just re-regulate the banks and break them up. Now, that, now that also makes one other assumption. I want your take on this. It's also assuming that you can somehow rein in finance without first having uh, the balance of class forces on your side, right? That these Absolutely. enlightened policymakers will just, you know, break up the banks because – Right. I don't know because it's the right thing to do or something, right? Like, uh, well, yeah. So, what, what's your take on that kind of like um, policy fetishism? You might call. You no, might this call a- absolutely it it absolutely requires a, a a mass movement that sees this as a critical pillar in its platform, right? And uh, and it doesn't require that just for political reasons. Like, it's not going to happen without that. But it also requires that in terms of its functioning, it's not going to be democratic and it's not actually going to be transparent unless it's put in place with that. Right. And so that's, that is an essential component um, of it. And I, th- I think we, I think it's, I mean, maybe one thing that, that I would mention about this that might not, that uh, maybe your pre- previous guests who've talked, talked about uh, democratizing finance, controlling it uh, might not have mentioned is that there are real strategic reasons for wanting to do this as well. Um, long-term sort of like a uh, transition to socialism kind of reasons. Uh, one thing that we've seen that we kind of, uh, I think a result that sort of is, is striking across almost every single attempt to um, uh, establish socialism through formal democratic uh, politics is that socialist governments come in come into uh, severe um, difficulty to put in put in place their uh, their pro- their socialist programs, and that's almost always because once they try, businesses simply disinvest. Right, 
businesses right, withdraw right. investment, they sort of slow the economy down. People lose their jobs. When people lose their jobs, they get pissed off. They vote. They vote them out of office. Office um, as the as disinvestment occurs, uh, states have less revenue to spend. And this is just like a recurring theme, right? It, it, it sort of it happened in, uh, uh, with with Allende. It happened uh, with Mitterrand. It, it happened. You could probably say with Syriza. Right, far more extreme version with Allende, we might add. Just oh, add yeah. for for my listeners in the global south, they'll be undoubtedly thinking like, "Wow, Western privilege much or whatever, Northern privilege much?" Because like, what happens to them is they get bombs dropped on their heads and uh, fucking, you know, uh, uh, secret police and stormtroopers, you know, taking them off in the middle of the night and uh, oh, absolutely. slitting absolutely. their throats in, in the in the uh, in the jungle somewhere, you know. But yeah, anyways, I just wanted to add that. Although that that occurred after you know the business strikes had basically shut down the government. That is true. But, fair, fair point. So the, um, the, the, uh, the capital strike uh, preceded the, uh, yeah. the coup, the unrest. I mean, the, the, the point of what, what I'm trying to say is, is that cap, these capital strikes, what um, Eric Olin Wright has called transition troughs. Like when you, when you get these uh, efforts at socialist transition through formal politics, these governments go through this extreme difficulty because of the slowing down of the economy by, by capitalist interests. Um, it makes it incredibly difficult to actually legislate real socialist change. It's why, it's why, you know, even sort of mainstream political scientists like Charles Lindblom uh, could characterize the market as a prison, right? That it, it sort of automatically punishes politicians that pursue policies that firms don't like, even oftentimes without the firm's, you know, wanting, having the political intention to do that, you know, they just see, they just see the business climate being one in which it's not a good idea to invest. And so they make the economic decision not to do it. What, what, what I think, um, uh, sort of democratizing finance could do strategically is kind of begin to get around this problem. This structural power of capital has totally bedeviled, uh, uh, leftist, Right through through the past fifty years, mm. but if we have popular popular control of of things like pensions, we have popular control of 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 banks, we have popular control of uh, financial institutions that that wield this this huge credit making power. Uh, we could sort of use those institutions to increase investments into public works projects, right? That that would minimize the effect of private private investment slowdowns. We could use those in, in, uh, those those institutions to uh, threaten firms uh, that seek to disinvest in the economy to go to go elsewhere. We could we could sort of disinvest from from firms with them. Uh, we could use we could use the the power of finance to essentially punish firms um, either by sell, selling their stock shares or or uh, maybe withholding loans. So basically, what I'm saying is that I, I actually think if we if we're if we're thinking seriously about socialism and how to get there, that that controlling finance, democratizing finance, is is kind of crucial to create a space uh, for socialist uh, legislation, right? Mm. That 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 to sort of to control investment is is a is a is a necessity if we're ever going to actually have any chance of of uh, of of, of of moving towards socialism more broadly. Right. This is such an important effort. Um, you know, I, I think like 
yeah, we, we've only just begun this project, you know, in, in a real serious kind of way, like not to denigrate your efforts or Lee's efforts or Mikhail Rosworski's efforts or anyone else who's thinking and writing about this right now, which by the way, it's not many people. Uh, you and I have talked off air in the past, uh, you know, even months ago, maybe last year, even about like, you know, picking each other's brains about like, Hey, who's writing about this? Uh, who even, who even has like an actionable, uh, policy prescription when it comes to financialize or sorry, uh, turning the financial sector into a public utility, for example. Um, you know, one of the theories or possibilities comes from uh, a previous tradition where post office, uh, the postal service uh, has in, in some countries served as kind of like a small public lending uh, institution with, you know, low or non-existent interest rates or, or something along those lines, right? Like, right. So how do you turn financial investment and uh, in, in provisioning into a public owned and operated, uh, you know, democratized uh, utility? These are very difficult questions. Uh, there are a couple people over at Die Linke, uh, in Germany who have, tr- who have thought hard about how this might work in the yeah. German, in the German system. Of course, Die Linke hasn't really, uh, hasn't, quite been good top to bottom electorally or even politically recently. So it's not likely that we're going to see them uh, implementing some, some of these strategies, but uh, yeah. So what are you finding on your work? I know, like I said, it's preliminary, it's not finished, but uh, what are, what are some of the immediate kind of actionable policy prescriptions that you're finding or thinking through uh, for, for writing that section of your book? Well, I think um, one of the most immediate is, is uh and, and and indeed, one of the most likely things that could be democratized are pension funds. I mean, these are these are things that you know work, workers, oftentimes through their unions, do have uh, you know partial control over. Uh, it's they're kind of seen as as being sort of um, uh, the workers' property or, uh, in some sense, uh, and so. Uh, this this could be something that I think uh, both labor unions and the left could think more strategically about winning, right? right, um, right. And there's been long there's been a long history of effort to democratize and to sort of control labor pension funds. So there's something to, there's something to build on. There's a there's a there's a past uh, effort that's led to sort of theorizing about it. That's led to sort of literature about it. But I I think we need to sort of you know we we. As you know, thinking thinking big here, we we definitely we shouldn't we can't stop there. We actually need to sort of be thinking about how we can uh, really democratize finance in general. And and that might sound crazy. It might sort of, sort of be like, what is this guy talking about? He's talking about uh, controlling banks. Like how like that that's never going to happen. Well, if, if you look at if you look at the sort of public sentiment about about Wall Street, the vast majority of people like absolutely loathe it. The, the, the most, right. most, most. I mean, in terms of in terms of like popularity of an idea, it's not that it's not actually that crazy. And and actually, um, governments have uh, something of a history of taking over banks. Uh, it, it wasn't it wasn't so long ago in the U.S. that several banks were taken over. Uh, in in the in the U.K., uh, so, uh, banks were taken over after the after the financial crisis there. Um, their aim when they when they took those over was to sort of get them solvent again, and then they privatized them again. Right. Well, you had the bank, the governor of the Bank of England, if I'm not mistaken, 
who went on record in the Financial Times, like in the immediate wake of the crisis, saying like, well, if, uh, you know, is it? If if our banks require so much government intervention and so much taxpayer you know uh, backstop, so many taxpayer backstops, um, should we uh, not think more seriously about turning finance into a kind of public utility, like to better yeah, integrate to better integrate uh, these uh, uh, you know these demands uh, to to bail out banks uh, when these financial crises inevitably uh, occur. So these were, th- these were like elite mainstream, uh, you know, discourses. It's funny. I was yeah. talking off like, uh, crisis really does sober people, doesn't it? <laughs> right. It really humbles, uh, the, the elites <laughs> in a way that I just love. God, I love it. It feels good. Of course, yeah, it's, I, it's always short lived, but uh, I, I wonder what he'd say today. Right. <laughs> yeah, nothing like that. I'm sure, you know, Greenspan sure, certainly isn't going to be so, uh, you know, humble and conciliatory. Uh, they'll be right. back to their braggadocious, you know, uh, ways. Yeah. But it, you know, it, it's, it's something that, uh, you know, in popular sentiment kind of has this main street versus wall street uh, framing of things where, where people don't identify with wall street interests and indeed people are quite hostile to them. And so I, I, th- I think when we talk about these issues, even though it would require a, a very large and a very um, a politically consequential movement, um, it connects up to popular sentiment in ways that I don't think is so far, far fetched, you know, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. It's not, it's not, I don't think we're dealing in, in, in the realm of science fiction when we talk about democratizing finance. I just really don't. I mean, this might just be too simplistic, but I mean, the populist sentiment is there, but unfortunately it, it usually gets wielded in um, uh, oftentimes like reactionary, um, you know, political trajectories or, or just, or just not just even reactionary, just benign, right? Like, you know, they, they propose these seemingly sweeping, whatever, you know, uh, reforms that if anyone who knows anything about, you know, the integration of financial markets in the state and, and, and all that, like, we'll just look at it and kind of be like, yeah, okay, whatever. Like, even if you get what you want, uh, that's not going to really, that's not even going to make a, a dent in this juggernaut of financialization. Uh, so, I mean, really, I don't, maybe I'm being too optimistic or, Pollyannish, but like, I really do believe that like, you know, our generation needs to inject, uh, some of the theoretical and strategic like clarity about this terrain that we're on right now, you know, about like how we failed last time, you know, various failures of labor in the 1970s, um, when we had the strength and we had the opportunity to move beyond something like, uh, you know, globalized financial capitalism, and we failed. We were defeated. Uh, it's turned into a one-sided class war ever since, in some respects. And so, uh, during the, the the struggle, the fire this time, in the words of James Baldwin, uh, you know, uh, we need to do better. And there, it's, you know, I, I don't want to be in a position thirty years from now, having lost again, uh, being forced to kind of live the rest of my life pointing the finger at the people who either capitulated or sold this out or whatever. Right. Uh, because mm-hmm. my contention is, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm just a gamer or something like, but, uh, you know, I, if you lose, you lost, you, you need to win, right? If you're in a coalition and your leadership sell, like sells you out, well, you know, you can point the finger and you can name call them all you want, but you still lost. You should have won. You should have found a way. 
uh, to to consolidate the social, economic, and political forces that you can consolidate, and and be victorious. And if you're not, then you lost. And uh, I, you know, I don't know. Is that am I making sense here? I just don't think there's enough of that attitude on the left right now. Like we mu- we have to find a way to win, uh, you know, at all costs, which means we have to have uh, theoretical and strategic clarity uh, to be able to do so. And the theoretical and strategic clarity that is situated with the sort of very concrete understanding of our moment, right? That that yeah, that right. we we are not we are no longer in the 1960s and 1970s. We are, we are in it. We are in a moment of and a, and a period of fin- finance capitalism. Right, how do right, we right. how do we sort of organize within the framework that we're in? How do we use finance against itself? How do we sort of mobilize? Um, uh, mobilize in the sort of area, the new areas, areas of power. Like that's, that's something I think that, um, that we need to be very strategic and very thoughtful about. And, and, uh, to me, it's a mistake to sort of, to, 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 to just presume that we can use formula that were written for different contexts in different times. Yeah. Right. Right. You know, we, we, we need, we need to sort of recognize that, that we're in a new train of struggle and there are, and in that new train of struggle, there are, there are also new opportunities. Right. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm heartened by the wildcat strikes that we're seeing in the United States. You know, the, the West Virginia teachers, uh, you know, was technically a Absolutely. wildcat strike. I mean, it's, it's really exciting. Uh, it's the reemergence of a class uh, politics and, and the acknowledgement that it's us versus them. And damn it, it's going to be us. You know, that it's that it's that like I said, it's that gamer mentality. We're going to we're going to win this thing. Right. So I'm, I'm very heartened by that, but I'm also very cautious as well, because like you say, like that wildcat tactic uh, is one that uh, it's still highly relevant today, maybe more so than ever. I'm not arguing that it's not, mm-hmm. uh, but but it also comes from an era. Uh, if we're not careful, we'll we'll, we'll, we'll romanticize labor struggle, um, avoiding the fact that another absolutely crucial aspect of our economic destiny these days is this financializ- financialization component, right? And that all of our labor labor successes will be undermined by it. If we don't find a way to address it alongside, uh, you know, the, the labor struggles of today, and, and uh, absolutely, yeah. and finding a way to sort of move from struggles over, uh, you know, the bread and butter issues that are so crucial, you know, whether they be uh, wages or, or benefits, to struggles over those larger political uh, issues like control over control over finance, uh, universal health care. Which I, which I think are going to be the uh, you know the important things that can actually you know to use a football reference uh, you know move the, the move the ball down the field right <laughs> <You know? laughs> these non reformist reforms you know that they were they were yeah, talking well, about here yeah. developing our capacities uh, to uh, kick the shit out of the other team uh, on on a non football field of course because <laughs> that's not what we're doing here. <laughs> yeah, man. Hey, uh, you know, this is great. This is a really fun, epi- uh, fun interview. We covered a lot of stuff. That's the good news. The bad news is, I, I don't know. I think, I think we're done here. I think the show's over. I don't, I don't have, uh, we could, we, we covered everything. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I, I guess I have to put out more episodes after this one, but, uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe we'll talk about, uh, football. I don't know. I feel like we covered all our bases, man. We got the labor. To talk to that's right. Well, yeah, we could talk. We could talk about the Packers. Are you, are you a Packers guy up there? A little bit, yeah. No? A little bit. Uh, Vikings. I, I'm gonna admit, I, I have a Packers jersey. Hey, pa- <laughs> Packers over Vikings any day. Come at me, bro. Uh, you know, the Packers are essentially a, a public utility. Am I right? That's right. 
No, it's, it's the Hell only yeah. publicly owned team. That's right. I don't give a shit about the team. Unfortunately, how else I'm could sorry, you? Ex- how else could you explain uh, the fact that they're in Green Bay? <laughs> Why else would they stay there? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's fucking cold. <laughs> People wear cheese on their heads. That's weird. If they move to Miami, can you ima- imagine like the Miami cheese heads? Like that doesn't fucking make any sense. Like a bunch yeah, of no, Cubans, that doesn't. like a bunch of Cuban expats, like rocking cheese hat, cheese helmets. Like that doesn't fucking work. Come on. It's, uh, it, culturally, it just doesn't, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. So anyway, yeah. Hey, we've been doing this. Uh, we've been, we've been doing this for a while. So I'll let you go. Hey, thanks. Uh, we covered so, so many topics, finance, uh, you know, obviously politics, electoral politics, uh, labor, um, you know, the whole the whole spiel, uh, Glass-Steagall. Um, hey, if uh, Bernie Sanders, if you're listening out there, Bernie, Bernie, <laughs> uh, or, or Bernie's, uh, you know, uh, advisors, uh, Mr. McCarthy uh, would make a fantastic advisor. Uh, so, uh, you know, hit him up. I'm happy to up. serve in the revolutionary government. Happy to serve. All right. Mike McCarthy, thanks again for coming on the Dead Pundit Society. Uh, let's have you back on here in uh, you know several months' time, and, and we'll update folks on that book and, and talk about uh, you know whatever shenanigans uh, happens to be going on. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me. And that concludes this week's episode on financialization and socialist strategy. Thanks again to Michael McCarthy for joining us. Man, we did like a five-hour marathon interview session for those past two episodes. And Mike, uh, you know, he, he duked it out like a champ. Um, I felt like I felt I was a, a little tired there towards the end, the end of the interview, but he was as sharp as ever. So thanks again to Mike for putting that together for us. I really enjoyed it and learned a lot. As I said, uh, he's got a really great book. It's called Dismantling Solidarity. I'll link to it again in the show notes. That just came out last year from Cornell University Press. It's very accessible to a general audience. So if you liked what you heard last week and you want to hear a little bit more about those historical trends, pick up his book. It's really good. As I mentioned early in the show, joining me next week is going to be Amy, the new co-host of Dead Punnett Society. She's an Australian from Down Under, and she's probably going to rightfully uh, tease the crap out of me for my abysmal fucking horrible Australian accent. And, uh, and I'll deserve every second of it because it's bad folks. It's real bad. Uh, anyway, Amy's coming. Look out for that. I'm excited. It's going to be a really, it's going to be a blast. So until then, dead pundit out. Oh, this new crazy mother. Yeah.